Looking Glass, episode 54, everybody. This is X, a.k.a. Henny, at BlackSC9T, and on the tag, Celsius Bitches, back from my one-week break, my one-week vacation. I hope everybody was good and well while I was gone. I am joined by, of no. course, the lovely, the illustrious, the amazing Ash Stanbeat, everybody. How's it, how you doing, Ash? Wow! Gassed me up? What the fuck? What? That's probably the nicest thing you've ever said to me. I, mean, I try to be they nice to me. The nigga call me lovely and illustrious. I feel like a bad <laughs> bitch out here. <laughs> but no, welcome back to Looking Glass. It's a special episode today. Y'all are going to enjoy it. Because we enjoyed it. Man, we enjoyed the fuck out of it. And then, of course, we are joined <laughs> by the return of the end of the hour. The acolyte himself. My, my 51 episode break. But the yes. New Oh, it's been 51 episodes. Has it been 50? No, it's been like 40-something. Like you you left around 10, right? So it's like... I don't know. It's been like 45 episodes, something like that. If we don't it was know. a... What's up, everybody? It's a, oh, it's, a, it's a very good episode. Uh, you right. might learn something. Shed a tear, maybe. <laughs> All right, so this week on Looking Glass, we interviewed the illustrious, the amazing Brian Edward Hill, incredibly insightful individual right there. Uh, what you are going to hear for the following is our interview with him. We hope you guys enjoy it, and uh, we still got to give an episode title, so y- well, y'all know when we put this the shit Brian out. Hill episode. All right, yeah. uh, but that's so boring. It is, but it was okay. Well, listen back to it and hear some quotables. Right. Write down the quotable. All right, man. We'll we'll get and then to do that. it. Right. Everybody enjoy the interview. We are joined by the writer of As vs. the Evil Dead, uh, Titans. Batman the Outsiders, American Carnage, Michael Cray, and a host of other books, including the upcoming Fallen Angels. Brian Edward Hill, ladies and gentlemen. How, how you doing? Yo! I'm, I'm good. You know, I mean, you know, we're just chilling up here in LA. You know how it is. <laughs> I just want this man to really put the whole voice on me like, yo, what's up, B? Like, oh, man. What's up, man? How you doing? How's it going out there? We're good. We're good. Good. Good, good. All right, man. Let's, uh... Before we actually get into anything, we always ask a question before we actually get into the agenda here. What you reading lately? Mm. What you've been reading? What you've been watching lately? The people want to know. Ooh. Ooh. Um, well, see, I don't read a lot of uh, uh, the monthlies when they come out because I just can't keep up. I mean, you see, when you're writing comics, you get all these comps, right? They send all this stuff to you. And I can't get through it all. But Josh Williamson just gave me uh, number one of Batman Superman. Mm-hmm. And... I think that book is fantastic. Uh, I think that book is great. I'm I'm always reading Tom's work. You know, I stay up on my Batman, obviously. That's important. Uh, House of X is dope. Uh, so I've been been checking that out. But I read a lot of old stuff, man. I mean, the last thing I really sat down cover to cover was probably Electra Assassin from way back in the day, from like the 80s. Damn. That's that Sin Cabbage uh, Frank Miller joint. Ooh. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably the last joint I like, you know, kind of sat down and read all the way through, but um, I do that maybe like once a month or once every couple of months just to get the refresh. Mm, that's, I haven't read Frank Miller Daredevil in about two years. Damn. Oh yeah, Electro Assassins is crazy like fever dream of a book. It's it's mainly, I don't even think Daredevil's in it. He's not. It's uh, just Electra. It's Bilson Kevich doing the art and uh, Frank Miller writing. And it's like this fever dream tone poem of a, of a story, but I just think it's just dope, man. I mean, that's, that's what I came up on. Like I, I read monthly comics like everybody growing up, but you know, you get a little bit older 
and you're going through some things and and you start gravitating to fiction that's a little more complex or a little more challenging Mm -hmm. so i moved from the monthly stuff to like arkham asylum batman the dark knight returns batman year one batman the cult right like a cosmic odyssey you know like that kind of stuff so most of the the seminal works for me are those like miniseries where people were just kind of riffing, you know, like Gotham by Gaslight, the Mike Mignola joint, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that's Batman versus Jack the Ripper in a cool Elseworld story. So that's that's more of the stuff. I guess people would call it like Black Label now, you know. I mean, that's kind of the same vibe. But those are uh, those are the works that really spoke to me when I was growing up. Damn, that's a lot. That's a, that's. A, I'm gonna have to start reading. Go back in my backlog, start reading all that stuff. But uh, let's go ahead and get into our questions for the day. Uh, I already introduced you. So, uh, like, what what inspired you to become a writer? Did you always want to be be a writer, or did this something just like kind of fell in your lap? Oh man! Well, uh, the short answer is well, no. I didn't always want to be a writer. I um, when I was a kid, I read a book called Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's the first in the Hannibal Lecter novels, right? It's the first appearance of Hannibal Lecter. It's the Will Graham stuff. No Claire Reese, just Will Graham. So I read that book, and, and the character in that book was a guy that was chasing serial killers, right? And I was like, ooh, that sounds like a that sounds like a job for me. I want to do that. So when I was like 13, I thought I was going to be an FBI agent, and I was going to go after like serial killers. I wanted to be like, you know, that dude from that book. And I was kind of set to that for a number of years. And then my mom saw that I wasn't playing around, and she's like, yo, 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 yo. pick something where you don't have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I'm like, all right, um, hmm. well, I like movies a lot. You know, I like stories a lot. I was always pretty good at English. Uh, so then I decided, well, I want to go to film school. I'm going to be a filmmaker. And I went to NYU, uh, film television production. Uh, and I was broke at the time. I mean, I grew up pretty poor. And then in college, I was just like poor on top of poor because I was in New York. And the whole thing was really a struggle those four years, man. And um, I didn't have enough money to make student films because back then it was a thousand dollars a minute to make a movie because you had to use film. You had to use film cameras. That means you needed film lights and you couldn't just take your, your iPhone and point it at something and get a 4k exposure and then take it into some other app and turn the exposure up and get it looking right. Right. You had to like do all of that kind of uh, analog stuff. I just couldn't afford to make anything uh, big you know, relatively big, you know, like 20 minutes or whatever, like my, like my, uh, film school friends were doing. So I decided, well, I'm going to start writing because writing is basically free. I can do it with a, a legal pad and a pen. Right. Um, and I was senior year of college. I was living in a room inside this crazy lady's apartment in Harlem. Uh, and cause I couldn't afford the dorms, dorms are too expensive, but I could afford this room. So I was in this room and this is back in 90, 98, 99. I think it was like, I don't know, like $400 a month or something like that. Um, adjusted for inflation is, well, remember we're talking in 98, 99 and then we're talking Harlem, Harlem pre-gentrification, you know, it was, <laughs> that's key. <laughs> it was still real. It was still real up there, you know, the and that we had nightmares about. Oh yeah, let me tell you, man. It, you know, it, it was it was real up there, and I I was so broke I couldn't even afford like the metro card for the subway. So I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning, and I would walk to NYU 
down on A Street. I'd walk from 125 to A Street. Uh, so I could get there by the time my first class started at like 9, 9.30 or something. And then uh, at the end of the school day, I would have to bugger off and walk back up to Harlem because I wanted to get up there before it got too dark, right? Before I was just like, you know, this dude just walking up, not knowing where he was, looking like it looked like a target, right? I looked like a, you know, I looked like a thug snap, right. you know what I mean? And I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't be up there like that. But I'll tell you what, though, uh, there was one day when I'm like walking up, I'm walking up there. It's a little late. It's like about ten thirty because I hung out with some friends uh, before I before I hooked up, and no one knew how broke I was. I mean, maybe a couple of my friends knew, but it wasn't like a thing. Like I was trying to hold it down, you know, and so. Um, and I'm walking up there, and this dude who looks like a combination of like Wesley Snipes and a Stringer Bell, man, he just looked like he looked. I mean, he looked like what keeps Republicans up at night. You know what I mean? Like, he was that dude, and he like, hey, and I'm like, oh no, it's over. It's a wrap on me. This is when it's over. It's gonna end right here. Apparently, I've offended this man, and now I will pay. So I'm like, yeah, man, what up? He's like, yo, man, I, you know, you you ain't you ain't around here a lot. I was like, oh, well, I'm just staying over at so and so's place. He's like, all right, all right, what you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to trying to finish up film school, man. Oh, okay, you go you going to school then? I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, all right, you gonna be all right. I'm gonna make sure the block takes care of you. But if I see you get involved in anything, then it's on. So from that time on, it's in the year, like that neighborhood was really looking out for me. Right. Because they were like, all right, well, this dude is trying to trying to do something with himself. And I'm like, you know, 20 years old. So I didn't know nothing about nothing. Uh, and they actually looked out, you know, um, and just made sure that, like, you know, I got back safe. I didn't get messed around with like that, that kind of thing, man. So shout out to Harlem back in the late 90s, man. It kept me alive. But um, I was just doing a lot of writing because I could just do a bunch of writing. So I figured, listen, I don't know how a black guy directs movies because there was Spike Lee and. You know, and and Singleton, but it was just Spike Lee and Singleton, really. You know, Ernest Dickerson uh, was a DP. He was Spike's DP. He was a professor. So they were like some of us that were like in there. But I didn't know how you could do it. But what I felt like was, well, if I write a screenplay, they don't know I'm a Negro. Like, they can't look at a script and be like, black guy, keep him out. Right, right. So, and my name's like Brian Hill, right? Yeah. You know, so I sound like a like a you know I sound like a like a chubby Irish kid. So, <laughs> I, you know, and my, my mom was hilarious. Right? But back in the day, my mom was like, you know, when, you know, when you were you were, she would always tell me, you know, when you were born, Roots came out, and everybody got those Roots names, but I gave you that plain name so you could get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Mama Hill, everybody. That's that Missouri mama for you right there. That's Mama Hill right there. I mean, that's, that's what she was about. So, um, yeah, so I figured, all right, well, I'm just gonna write a I'm just gonna write screenplays because I don't I don't I didn't feel like race was gonna keep me out of the game when it comes to product, right? Like mm -hmm. whenever you look at how black folks have been able to kind of find their way through the system, a lot of times it's because either we become a product or we make a product. Mm. that the system embraces, right? So they don't necessarily have to feel like they are putting us on personally or advancing our cause. It doesn't necessarily feel like a threat because they're they're basically exploiting what you're making in, in, in the kitchen, right? Mm. So that was my strategy. I mean, it's different now. I'm talking like 
this is pre 9-11. We're talking like 1999. You know, this is uh, so this is way back before we had a Ryan Coogler's before we had, you know, the Steve McQueen's like that wasn't a thing back then. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to be was something that just people just didn't you just you, you didn't become that. Right. So uh, I started writing screenplays and I uh, sent them around and, uh, you know, did, didn't sell anything for a while. But then I got a foothold. I got a little option here. An option is when a producer says, hey, we like that script. We're not going to buy it, but we're going to give you some money so we can hold it and try to get it made. And if we get it made, we'll buy it. And an option can happen uh, for a contracted amount of time. Right? It can be a six-month option. It can be a two-year option. They put a little money in your pocket. Generally, not a lot of money, especially when you're starting out. But, you know, you can draw some blood, right? Uh, and it kind of keeps you in the game. So I did a little bit of that. And then uh, I bumped into... Uh, a guy named Nelson Blake II, who I did a book called Romulus with mm-hmm. um, a few years ago. And Nelson was a comic book illustrator. Uh, and he used to hang out with a bunch of illustrators. There's going to be a Starbucks. There's a long-winded answer to this question, isn't it? but uh, it's a story. Though. I'm going to tell you the story. So uh, there was a Starbucks in, in Astor Place over in New York in, in the late 90s where all like these comic book uh, 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 artists used to go. They used to bring their little uh, the, the the lighting tables. This is back when they were still working on paper. So like Chris DeBarry was over there, Fool Richardson was over there, Damian Scott was over there. That's how I met Lashawn Thomas. You know, I, I wrote that episode of Cannon Busters not too long ago. Well, I met Lashawn back in the day. You know, uh, and uh, Nelson and I became good friends, and I met uh, some other comic book folks, and then I wound up finding a place to live with this dude named Walter McDaniel, who was a comic book artist from the '90s. Uh, and he was doing his own kind of art studio thing and he needed a writer. So, you know, I just kind of finessed it, uh, into sticking around New York and then a bunch of things, you know, kind of slowly materialized. I, I ended up writing a Dolph Lundgren movie and that kind of got that thing going. And then I met some other comic book people and, and eventually that, uh, got me a short story over at Top Cow. Uh, and so I did that, you know, and then from then on, you just kind of, you just keep punching. You know, I mean, the hardest thing to do is to make the enemy stumble. Once they stumble, you just keep hitting, right? Like, that's that's easy, right? But when you're in the first rounds of trying to get your career together, you know, it's like you're fighting Drago. Like, you just don't know who could hurt this man. <laughs> Felt that. Yes. Felt that. You know? you know what I mean? But, but once, once, you, once you get them, once you see, once you get them and, and, they, and they take that breath, it doesn't have to be a knockout. You just got to get that smack in and hit it. It's like, okay, you human. <laughs> Okay, so this is just about who falls down first. Well, I ain't gonna fall down, so we're gonna have a long night. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I approach the game. Like once I got a little bit of money for anything, like well, I can turn a little bit of money into more money. You know, turning zero into something is a lot harder than turning something into something else. Right. <laughs> so, right. So I just kept <laughs> on from there. That's the truth. <laughs> All right, man. Um... So I read another interview you did with uh, Sci-Fi a little while ago, and you said uh, after your father died, which my condolences, I'm sorry to hear that, uh, Batman was That's like... Right. It's, not, it's not your fault. You, you didn't kill him. It was cancer. Batman was the first comic you kind of resonate because like, the first thing you saw was this man with this boy in the middle of his parents, his both dead parents. And I want to know, like, what was the first comic to make you feel like, you know, I could write this shit? Wow. You know, it's a good question, man. I tell you what. Yeah, I did identify with Batman a lot because, you know, I'm, I'm part of Dead Dad Club. 
Uh, and, you know, we have millions of members around the world, unfortunately. So I could, uh, I could identify with Bruce Wayne a lot. But it wasn't just the loss of the parent. You know, back, in, back when I was a kid, I was this poor kid going to this, uh, I was a scholarship kid to this private high school in St. Louis, right? Mm -hmm. And I never felt like I fit in anywhere. You know, because everybody in that school had more money than me. They all had a life plan. You know, you're talking about kids that have their parents investing money for them when they're 12. So by the time that they're 18, they've got like 150 grand liquid in the bank, stuff like that, right? Crazy stuff. And then, you know, I'm going, I'm going home. I know what government cheese sandwiches taste like. Not good. Not good. You know, uh, you know, I know what food pantries are all about, right? So I was... Uh, really stuck in this kind of dual place. And so, so that, that duality of Bruce Wayne, um, it, that I think more than anything else is what spoke to me. Like, okay, you might have to create an individual that you have to be to accomplish what you have to do while you work on your, your under the mask self, if that makes sense, right? And so that's, that's really where I started kind of living through that philosophy basically. Now, in terms of when I thought I could write it, um, I think around the time I read Arkham Asylum, you know, I, I, uh, um, I was really into that, that work and, and Morrison uses elements of Alice in Wonderland and, and really kind of plays with the mythos a lot as Morrison is, is often uh, going to do. And that's when it kind of clicked that I could tell that story. I think, I think it was, more than just like reading a comic book that said, hey, you can write comics, it was more like reading a comic book that showed me that what I knew about life, like its extremity, you know, the, the fear, the, the joy, the hope, the loneliness, you know, all that stuff, right, that, that like, I guess kids go through that I thought I was going through in an exponential way, I realized that, oh, this stuff that has been a burden for such a long time, this might give me the ability to tell these kind of stories. I might be able to see a little deeper into the abyss than other people because I've, I've been through it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's when I felt like, Ooh, I can, I can kind of harness it um, into that kind of work. But, but I never thought I'd write like a Batman comic book or a DC comic book. I didn't know how any of that worked, man. I just thought like, okay, I can tell some stories and I like comics, I like movies, I like TV, and I'll just try to do all three and see what happens. Uh, Ash, I think you are next. <clears throat> I am next. Hold on. So before I get started, I, I have to ask, because you mentioned being interested in serial killers and being an FBI agent earlier. And everybody knows yes, yes, like yes. that's that is my jam. So I have to ask, have you been watching Mindhunter oh on Netflix? <laughs> I haven't I haven't watched uh season two yet. I will watch season two. I haven't watched season two yet. Um but I like season one a lot. I'm a huge David Fincher stand. Right. So Anything David Fincher touches, uh, I'm, I'm messing around with, man. You know, like, because uh, I, was, I was in film school in, the, in like, 90, 95, right? Like, 95 was my first year. And that was the year that Seven came out. Mm -hmm. And Seven changed me. Right? I was like, oh, okay. That's, yes. that's a movie. That's what <laughs> yes. I want to do. I want to do stuff like that. I, that's, like, what's in the box? I want to do stuff like that. <laughs> And it was like, it was really seven and a heat because heat came out the same year. So it was a pretty crazy year, right? So between seven and Michael Mann's heat, 
I was like, that's it. I'm going to wear gray suits. I'm going to rob <laughs> banks. I'm going to catch serial killers. And, I, and I'm going to wear a cool old man hat and throw a switchblade at a target board. I thought I had it all figured out. So uh, I, I would follow David Fincher anywhere. So I haven't watched season two yet, mainly because when I watch stuff, it puts me in a, in a zone. Mm-hmm. And what I've been working on lately, I can't get into that mind hunter zone because then I'll start walking around talking like Hannibal Lecter, and my wife will get upset. It's a whole thing. <laughs> I understand, oh, but season two, it's a good one. So, um, I'm sure it's like Manson's up in there, right? They have uh, what did they have this season? They had Manson. They uh, covered the uh, Atlanta child murders. Oh, okay, um, right on. Yeah, right on. yeah, and they did a really well, good I, job. I really enjoyed how they did that because it could have it could have been could have been pretty bad since you know people of color, black people getting murdered and stuff like that. But well, I, t- you know. I tell you what, I tell you what. From I, I've never met David, um, mm-hmm. but from everything I've heard, David is very sensitive to that stuff. You know, he's uh he's aware kind of right. of. of of how to how to present things, you know, and so wouldn't surprise me that it'd be handled with some sensitivity. And I think Charlize is a producer on that, right? Uh, and and Charlize, even though she looks like she'd be the bad guy, Charlize is actually down for the cause. Again, I haven't met her, but mm-hmm. I've heard nothing but good things about Charlize Theron too. So um, I know that they are they're definitely about not making exploitation and making that work. I don't know how many people of color are involved with it. Because when you see, when you have one of those like high tier shows, like mm-hmm. those shows, they happen at the top of the mountain. You know, like you don't even know who's working on that joint, right? It's just like, like those writers' rooms and those producers and directors, that's, that's a whole like strata of rarefied air. So I don't know who's working <laughs> on it, but it doesn't surprise me that uh, uh, it's handled thoughtfully. Right. Well, that was my serial killer portion of today. I had to get that out there. So right on. <laughs> today on serial killer radio. <laughs> exactly. Um, who are your biggest influences? Like who inspired you to write or who influenced you? Okay. Um, okay. Interesting question. So like, you know, like every kid who grew up in the eighties, George Lucas was probably the first time I thought about who created anything. Right. Like, you know, you see Star Wars and Star Wars just means a lot to you and you just you start consuming it. You know, for the, the way it works for me, at least, is first I watch the thing, then I fall in love with the thing. Then I read about, you know, then I read like the, the fiction. Right. You know, and what are other stories? And then I read the making of stuff. And then I get interested in who made it up. Right. And then I start paying attention, paying attention to like them as a, as a creator. So I would say like, you know, Lucas was the first time I thought about a storyteller and and found inspiration but beyond that you know, music is a, a huge influence to me as much as anything else you know like in a lot of ways tupac uh inspired me um just the way he was able to put so much emotion and truth into his work um and you know i think about that a lot uh uh you know it, it, Photography, you know, artists inspired me too. Like uh, someone like Peter Lindbergh, a photographer recently passed away. Huge Peter Lindbergh fan. And and his work was fashion work, but his work also had like a narrative quality to it, right? So more more than I'm inspired by writers to write, I'm I'm more inspired by like artists to create, you know? 
And uh, looking at like people whose perspective seems to align with my own and how they were able to kind of carve their way through it all, uh, that's um, kind of more of my more of my kind of thing than you know just like this writer and that writer. But I will say that growing up, learning about other writers, whether it was like you know uh, uh, you know uh, Hemingway or uh, you know uh, Richard Wright, you know Native Son. Um, Chester Himes is a black author that uh, people don't know about, but he wrote these really savage novels that would probably get him canceled today. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, but they were like ferocious. And I didn't always agree with what was in them, but they were ferocious. And I've always been drawn to people that were clearly fighting some kind of battle in there, right? Clearly they were trying to to bust down a door or break a wall or do something. And when you look at yourself in, in, in those terms, right? When you're like, okay, everybody that I admired had these dark times they had to go through. It doesn't, it makes you feel less alone when you're on the journey, right? It, it tells you like, oh, I'm just in the first stage of this. Okay, cool. You know, so-and-so went through this so I can get through this. Um, and then they were able to do a thing so I can think. So, kind of seeing yourself in the legacy of people, at least for me, helped me kind of keep at it when everyone told me that I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, I, I had meetings with editors at Marvel back in the day that said I'd never write a comic book because I was trash. I had editors at DC tell me I'd never write a comic book because I was trash. You know, I had producers tell me I was trash. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're going through all of that, but you just have to kind of keep yourself focused, uh, you know, keep your eyes on the goal line and just keep running uh, until you get <clears throat> wow, that's kind of struck a nerve with me. <laughs> I'm about to cry. It's so motivational. Like, oh, don't, don't cry. We just got started. Because <laughs> it's just like, I, I feel like a lot of people can relate, you know, because uh, I feel like I know um, Xavier, you're at this point in your life too. I'm at this point just with our like careers, you know, taking off. Like, it's just, it's hard because sometimes I kind of, close the door in your face. It's just, it's nice to hear someone with experience just, you know, give you food for the soul. It's, it's motivation on this, this fine Sunday. Especially somebody but, um, like us. <laughs> exactly. There we go. That's. Well, there's this thing out here where people, people get on, right? People get on and then they want to act like, oh, well, you know, you know, I just kind of thing and whatever, because they don't, I think people feel like if I'm honest about how I had to struggle to get here, then I will seem lesser than other people, right? And I just, I just don't believe that. And one of my, my, my things uh, in terms of communication, when I, when I talk to young writers or I just talk to people on Twitter or I'm just out talking to other filmmakers, whatever it is, I'm very candid about all of it. Because I, I, I want to be a person that I could have looked up to, not looked up to, because that's what's self-aggrandizing, but I want to be a person that I could have related to uh, when I was growing up that I didn't have, right? And not even like growing up, I just mean like, you know, being like 20-something years old, just trying to make it work, you know? And so if someone can hear me on a podcast or read something on my Twitter feed or, or go to my YouTube that I need to make more videos for. I know I'm sorry. Um, and, and, you know, and hear something that feels right, then, then that's, that's all, all for the good, right? Because, you know, that's what we have to do, especially, especially people of color. We get in, we got to hold the door open with one hand 
in right. front of us, but we had to hold the door open behind us with yes. the other hand, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and so that's what I that's what I try to do the best I can. All right. Um, next question. Out of the things that you can tell us, what are you most excited for in Titans season two? Oh well, you know we've got some really interesting new actors uh, that are that are part of this this one. Um, you know we got got Chelsea uh, who's playing Rose Wilson. Uh, you know we got Josh in there who's playing a, a certain character that I'm sure everybody knows. I don't talk about it, but you know it's, it's in the trailer that you see. Um, <laughs> so you know, so like I'm always excited because uh, a TV show is a lot like high school. And, you know, the first, the first season, nobody knows each other. And everyone's trying to figure out where they're going to sit at lunch. You know, and, <laughs> and, you know, and who's, who's this and who's that? And, and then, like, season two, it's, it's kind of, you know, everyone kind of knows the, you know, the first season folks. But then season two, new people come in. And, you know, and they got to figure out, like, where they're going to be and how they're going to be. So uh, the most exciting thing to me is always the collaboration, you know, of, me personally as just a writer part of that show in terms of like what viewers can expect i think that this season is is uh you know i think i think it's bigger uh i think it looks fantastic i think we've got so many different kinds of dramatic conflict we're exploring like real internal stuff with dick grayson and you know we've got awesome externalized sequences and and all that so you know, I'd say that if anyone was a fan of season one, they're definitely going to find uh, a meal in, in season two. And I just can't uh, wait for people to watch it all and uh, see what goes down. Um, oh, and then we got we got a little Bruce Wayne this season. I can say that mm-hmm. he was in the pilot. So, you know, I'm excited about that. Uh, so, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of all those things. It's so humbling being part of something like that because you're. You know, you, you work in a thing, you're in a, you're in a room and you're writing your, you know, you're breaking stories, then you're in your home office and you're writing a script and then you go to production and you help, you know, get the show get made. But you don't realize how much it speaks to people until people start embracing it, you know, and I've gotten so much love from people that's reaching out on social media, uh, all the, all the hype, you know, has been coming back. So um, I'm just grateful to everyone who supports the show and supports my work. Well, I'm excited. I am too, honestly. <laughs> um, this next question, I know Darius is going to love this, but um, how was your time writing Ash versus the Evil Dead? Oh, man. Okay. So shout out, <laughs> shout out to Mark Verheiden, who is the showrunner of, he was a showrunner of Ash versus Evil Dead, right? So Mark got me started in television. And he is a, just a beautiful human being. Uh, so I got on that show because I'd written a book called Postal for Top Cow Image. And mm-hmm. Postal got optioned as uh, to be a television show. Now I wasn't involved in that process. I'm still not involved in that process. Um, but that kind of put me on the radar of the TV folks. Now people didn't know that I had written my own pilots, that I had tried to develop my own television shows, right? So people reach out and say, "Hey man, are you are you interested in TV?" And I'm like, "Oh, and by the way, I've got these three shows I tried to create." <laughs> and that got me into the conversation, but nothing went on really, you know, because like everything in Hollywood wait hurry up and wait hurry up and wait so uh mark he read something of mine and he just reached out to me just out of the blue i got a call from him direct on my cell i almost didn't pick it up because i've had the same cell phone number since i was like you know 22 
and <laughs> it's 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 out there, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, I often don't pick up if I don't know who it is. But I was like, let me go ahead and pick this up. Little boy said, Brian picked this up. So I picked it up, and it was Mark in the end. He's like, hey, I'm Mark for Hyden, and I knew who he was because he was a a, a writer producer on Daredevil, and he wrote the episode where Daredevil and Frank Castle are on that rooftop. Oh, mm-hmm. that's the one yeah, yeah. It was, it, was like, it was like a little stage play, right? It was like a little David Mamet play on a rooftop. And I, and I just thought that was the, one of the dopest things ever, right? So he called me up, and before he could even talk to me about Evil Dead, I was like, oh, you mean Mark for Hyde and Daredevil? He's like, yeah. And then I started talking 10 minutes about that episode. I didn't even think it was like, yeah. I was like, we got to talk about this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's cool, cool. We'll talk about it. So then we had a cup of coffee. And uh, he just like, hey, man, you know, what do you, how do you feel about, you know, are you familiar with Evil Dead? And I was like, yeah, man, I know about, I know about some Necronomicon, you know. Um, I know <laughs> about all that. And he said, you know, we have a spot on the show. Would you, would you like to do it? And I was like, um, like, like, right on the show? You mean like right? <laughs> so I was like, yeah. Uh, and that, that got me started. But I didn't know what I was doing. Like, like I, I, the first week of that show, I'm shocked they didn't fire me. I was trash. I was literally garbage. <laughs> and, and you know, and you know that. See, the thing is, see, if, if I have a superpower, my superpower is I know really quickly when I'm being garbage, and I can course correct. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like I'm not a running back who just runs straight through people. I'm like some Barry Sanders. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, okay, that hole is closed. I got to spin and get around. You know what I mean? So. I was like, this isn't working, but I can't, I'm not going to get fired. So I, I quickly made some personal adjustments to working in the writer's room because I had no idea how to do that. Uh, and uh, luckily, everyone was really patient with me. There's a good friend of mine. His name is Luke Calto. He was a writer on Daredevil as well. And, uh, and he was a, a producer on Krypton, I think. And so Luke taught me a lot about how to, how to help a writer's room. Um, because I think I kind of went in there, I went in there intimidated, and then I start, was trying to overcompensate uh, by just being a little too aggressive about my ideas. And I just had to learn to chill, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> and, and they helped me chill. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that, that, that process was great. Loose, I, remember, I remember one time, I'm, I'm in my, cause you get, so when you work, work in a show, you get a little office. And I shared an office with a very talented writer, her name is Caitlin Mears. I think Caitlin is on, um, she was on Santa Clarita diet last time I checked. Uh, and so Caitlin and I were, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Caitlin was super, super smart. Um, and so she and I were sharing this office, right? And I hear this voice, this beautiful, melodic New Zealand voice ask <laughs> if anyone knows where the pretzels are. And I turn around and Zena is just standing in the doorway, Right. And you're like, whoa, oh, I'm not prepared. No one told me this morning that Lucy Lawless was coming into the office. This is a lot. <laughs> and let me tell you something. I have never wanted to find a bag of pretzels more a day in my life than that moment. <laughs> in that moment, that pretzels were all that mattered. I was going to find this woman some pretzels. Uh, so I did. And uh, I found her, I told her where the pretzels were, got her bag of pretzels, and she was like, thank you. And I was like, this is the best job ever. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Uh, 
Ashley, you got anything else? Um, just what other TV projects are you working on that you're allowed to talk about? Of course, we don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> well, let's see. So, so we, we just uh, finished up the writing on season two. You know, you kind of shoot and write at the same time. So, uh, so Titans is still going strong. Um, I can't really get into specifics, but I've got a couple original things that I've um, that I am in the process of maybe doing some stuff with. Um, you know, if, if for folks that have been paying attention, they might know kind of what those things could possibly be. But I would just um, tell people, just like you know, keep following me on social media, and as I can as I can talk about some things, I'll talk about some things. Um, but uh, we'll see what goes on. I've had some pretty interesting meetings over the past couple of weeks, so light a candle for me and wish me luck. Gotcha. Definitely. <laughs> All right, man. Um, what's your favorite project so far? Like TV, comics, movie, period. I'll be honest, man. Um, my favorite project so far was that Dolph Lundgren movie because that was like the first thing that I did that was real. And that experience was surreal from beginning to end, right? Like I get, I got a call from my, I was at like a real low point when I didn't know if I was going to do anything. I was going to win, whatever. I was just like, I don't know what do. I went to film school. I don't even have a real degree. This is going to be problems. This is going to be serious problems, right? I'm going to be like the the the, the weird guy at the cubicle, the Spider-Man tie at the office. That's going to be my life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I tried to write stories once. It's a tough racket, kid. You know, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> and so I get this call out of the blue. My manager at the time was like, hey, man, Dolph Lundgren wants to talk to you about a thing. And I was like, oh, I didn't know there were two Dolph Lundgrens. And he's like, no, no. <laughs> he's like, no, it's the other one. It's the real one. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. So, so I, and then like, in an hour, I get this call. You know, I pick up the phone, hello? Yes, Brian, I read your script. I liked it very much. Um, I'm directing a movie. I intend to star in a movie. I'd like you to write this movie, if, if you'd like to write the movie with me. And I had him on speakerphone. Because you don't know if this is going to happen twice. So I had all my <laughs> friends in my apartment. Everyone was like holding, the, holding their mouths. Golf was coming from the speaker. It was wild, right? Uh, so yeah, so like that was really the, 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 my favorite one. I got to go to Spain. I got to hang out with Dolph. He has the He-Man sword in a glass case in his house. That was crazy. <laughs> um, they, they put me up in this resort hotel because because back i think he lives in la now but but back then homeboy was living in spain in marbella spain which is like this resort part of spain that all like the the rich british kids go to right um so i'm like the only brown person around strangely enough everyone thought i was portuguese or something it was hilarious um because i I thought they were like calling me racial slurs and i realized like oh no that's just portuguese (laughs) And I don't know what Portuguese is. You know, it sounds like Klingon speaking. I'm from I'm from St. Louis. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't meet a Puerto Rican until I went to NYU. So I didn't, you know, know anything. But uh it was just, it was crazy. And when when I was standing on the beach looking at the rock of Gibraltar, uh peeking out from the blue water, right? And and you realize that you got here because you believed in yourself. You got here. Because when people told you you wouldn't be able to do it, you just kept on trying. So even though that movie is like some direct-to-video movie and no one knows what it's about and the whole thing, that will always be my 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 most treasured thing 
because it was the it was the first time that I got real evidence that I'd be able to 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 kind of get there, you know. Wow, that is that's that's mad inspirational. You just dropping bombs on us, bro. You trying to get me in my feelings, man. Oh, you know that's what we do. I'm 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 on some backpack shit today. (laughs) (laughs) Terrence, you up next, bro. Uh, I thought you were doing. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, anyway, what inspired you to write American Carnage and Michael Cray? Because I love Michael Cray. I have all twelve issues. Love oh, right book. on, man. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, with with Michael Cray, um, credit to Marie Javins over at DC. She was the editor of that book, and, and she's moved on to another department at DC now. I'm not even sure what Marie's doing right now. Um, but she reached out and said, Warren is looking for uh, someone to write Michael Cray as part of his Wildstorm thing. And uh, he liked your work. I think he'd read like Romulus or something. And, and uh, that book I did with Nelson, he liked that. And so um, I, you know, traded some emails with Warren. And, and, you know, you're talking to Warren Ellis, which is wild, right? So you're trying to hold it down and be professional, you know. Um, and they were just really supportive. And, and I told them, okay, I'll do this. But I... I if I write a, a character of color, I'm not gonna not explore things because they're black, right? I, like, I just wanna let you guys know I, that I, I let characters go where characters go and my characters are never perfect. They don't always do the right thing. You know, if you need this to feel like an after school special, then I'm not the writer because I wanna, I wanna write with dimension. You know, I, I, um, I, I firmly believe that you don't get a quality in representation until you have an equal opportunity to fail, to do the wrong thing, to make mistakes, right? Like if, if every time you create a person of color uh, or write a person of color in fiction, you have to make them perfect, then you're not really exploring anything. And that's not actual equality. That's not actual representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were like, no, no, we're on that page. You know, we're gonna, you, can, you, know, you can be free to do whatever you want. And Warren actually pushed me to do more of that direction. So that's where, uh, that's where Cray kind of came out of that. Um, and that was a great experience. I was working with Steve Harris. Uh, he did the art uh, for most of that. Nelson, I think uh, half an issue. There's a, there's a, I really like Nelson's part too. It, it, there's a part, I think it's like, I don't know, issue like 10 or 11 or something where you get Lex Luthor and, and it, it, you get like evil Lex Luthor and evil Wonder Woman having an affair on a yacht. Which is like the most Brian Hill shit. Like that is so me right there. You know, it was like it was like sexy and violent and dangerous and it was yeah, it was, it was dope. It was dope. Um, so yeah, that was a great experience. And then with American Carnage, you know, I don't often write about race, uh, and it's not that I don't have thoughts about race and racism because uh, obviously I do, but. I always felt like everyone else was just doing it so well. I had nothing else to contribute. Like, what am I going to say that Ta-Nehisi Coates hasn't already said? You know, what am I going to say that like Richard Wright doesn't say? What am I going to say that Malcolm X and Alex Haley didn't say? Right. We're still dealing with the same thing. So I could I could never really find a, a space where I thought I could do something new and different. And then, you know, we had the Charlottesville thing, you know, and I was like, man, this is, this is, this is getting, you know, real in, in the way that my mother talked about it. Mm-hmm. And, and you can see these, and you know, when you combine 
the anger with all the weapons we have out there and the 24-hour news cycle and the way people are constantly being, you know, goaded towards their worst uh, impulses. I was like, man, this is, a, we're having a moment. Um, so I would, and that was in my head, but it didn't really click for me until I went back to St. Louis because I'm from there. And so I go back maybe once, twice a year. And a kid that I had grown up with, white kid, I bumped into him and the kid had become a skinhead. What? Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah man. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you know, like spider webs and 88s and all types of stuff. Oh. Uh, and, I, and I just bumped into this dude. And I was like, oh. And he was like, oh, because, you know, he didn't know that I knew his secret identity. Uh, <laughs> you know, so before That's he was Captain, Captain Racist, I knew who, he, I, you know, I came off with him, right? I'm like, you know, he used to, he's hanging out at Mama's house. We played Sega Genesis together. Uh, so I was like, okay, that's a lot, right? Like, how does a kid like that turn into that, you know? And I, I rang his mom up and said, hey, you know, I bumped into so-and-so. Uh, is there uh, a way that he and I can sit down and kind of talk this stuff out? Not not to change him. I just want to kind of know where he's coming. And she was upset about what it, yeah, because, you know, she didn't want to be, on, be yeah, kind of on this path. Either. So I sat down with him and talked to him. And, you know, just kind of absorbed it. And I'm like, okay, someone, someone should write a story about how these ideologies seep into people. Like, how, how, it, how it lands inside the psyche, right? And how it can twist you up. And so I started doing some research. I, I, I would come up with a fake name. I'd go to, like, racist message boards. And first I would just watch and read and then I would interact a little bit. And I was just getting data, getting data, getting data. Uh, and then I would reach out to a friend of mine um, who kind of works with uh, kind of high risk individuals and say, hey, is there somebody that was in this movement that I could speak to? And I'd set up a couple meetings and do that. I mean, none of this stuff, I'm not saying to do this. Don't do this. I'm crazy. But this is, this is the Will Graham serial killer part of you know, thing. I'm, I'm, I was going understand what the what the killer sees from the from his own heart of darkness right so i did all that and i felt like okay if i i don't i don't know how much i believe in raw talent but i will say that uh if i have something innate i think i have an innate ability to articulate villainy in a way that that like explores and adds some dimension and there's an old there's an old saying in politics you know, they, they said that only Nixon could go to China because Nixon was so anti-communist for so long that when he was president and he went to China, nobody would accuse him of being a communist because he was so anti-communist for so long. And so when I thought about American carnage, I'm like, well, we need to we need a book out there that articulates the charisma of these racists and how it can work. We need a book where you can read that book turn those pages and find yourself getting seduced into a point of view. And frankly, a white writer can't write that because even if they were to do it well, everyone would wonder, is this how you really feel? Are these your real thoughts? Right? That's the truth, man. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't <laughs> be able to, to, to kind of live it out. Like if Scott but wrote that, I'm like, well, be like, hold up, bro, what's going on with you? Right, right. If Scott wrote it, if Tom wrote it, right? If you know, if Tom came out with that, you'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, Especially like, since Tom was in the FBI fun. too. Like, hold up, bro. Whoa, hold yeah, up. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where you coming from, man? What 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 are you are you are you left hand batting right now? What's, what's going on? Um 
But I felt like, well, I could go out here and do it because I could get out here and talk about it, right? Uh, and that's where the idea came from. But I didn't know if it was going to be a comic or a TV show or a novel or, or any of that. No idea. Um, but Vertigo reached out when they were doing the 25th anniversary thing. I was like, hey, Brian, do you have a Vertigo? And I'm like, man, I don't know, man. That's like magical realism. You know, a Vertigo book is like, what if, what if werewolves were cocaine dealers in the 40s? <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's accurate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is dope, but I didn't have one. You know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have like what if what if a bunch of call girls were like fairies in Paris? Like I, I don't know. Like, um, so I was like, well, I got this thing, and it's like a Azarello style, like kind of hundred bullets crime thing. It's probably way too stark for you guys, but I'll send it over. And I sent it to Jamie Rich, uh, uh, who's now the bat editor, but he was working at Vertigo at the time. And he was like, yeah, I love this. This is what I want to do. And I was like, are you sure? Because I'm going to use all the words. Let's be clear up front. Man, all the words. Man, there's this one um, there's this one panel that me and my friends use all the time. It was like, uh, it was the got the, the character's name but the white lady with the blonde hair is like smoking a cigarette she's like well you're a house nigger anyway i was like whoa let's let's relax bro like damn oh well that's jennifer yeah, yeah man uh, jennifer morgan well what i wanted to do was um you know i like a lot of people were like oh this is about trump man it ain't about trump let me tell you something donald trump is not interesting enough to write a story about right Ooh, like facts just because something is powerful and damaging doesn't make it interesting enough for fiction. You know, like it's just, he does not. He's not. The flu isn't that interesting. It, <laughs> it can kill you. But who wants to read a novel about the flu, right? So, so frankly, I found the Trumps, they're, they're too simple to write stories about. You know, they're remarkably simple. Um, it's just, you know, they just have a lot of power. But so what I wanted to do was uh, kind of think more about like tent preachers and and corrupt politicians and corrupt businessmen and how you know they have one side for the public and and kind of one side in private uh and also just how entitlement and, and privilege can protect an individual and how a person could feel so safe to just know that they're so absolutely safe that they could just say that to someone like richard right to his face right mm-hmm. and and that's an extreme version of like the lady that cuts in front of you at Starbucks because she can't, <laughs> you know, or the, one of the things that really drives me up a wall and I, and I actually I go through a lot in LA, I'll be having coffee with someone or having a lunch with somebody and, you know, they're talking about potential job and, and, and all of that. And I'll watch them treat the, uh, the server like they're nothing. Uh, I hate that. Right. And, and every single time I just stop and say, hey, well, hey, don't do that, you know? And, and I have lost jobs because I've had that moment. But I, I, it really drives me up a wall when people feel like they're so privileged and so entitled and so safe that they can just treat people like trash. Uh, and yeah, that moment right there um, was, was about that, you know? Uh, and, and for Richard in that moment, you know, I think, I think he had to come, come to terms with I'm dealing with monsters, mm-hmm. you know, like these are monstrous people. Uh, and I need to, to accept that. I need, I need to behave that way. Right. 
so yeah, so that's kind of all the stuff that American Carnage sort of came out of. And uh, I've been really just grateful for people reading the book and responding to it. Um, and I'm really proud of, uh, of that, that series. So you have a, like a penchant for writing badass characters like Michael Gray and, uh, and Romulus. Uh, so, like, you give them humanity and ideas to ponder over. So, where do you find the hook for writing characters, like, with specific chips on their shoulders? Well, I mean, I grew up with a chip on my shoulder. You know, I had multiple chips on my shoulder. I had, like, I, I had the I'm, I'm broke chip. I had the I'm black in St. Louis chip, you know? Uh, I had the dead dad chip. I had chips, man. I was at the table. I could bet a few times. So, you know, I understand where that comes from. And what I try to do is I try to tell stories about characters that have to harness those emotions and turn them towards something positive, because that energy can get really self-destructive really quickly. You know, you know, it's it's like the way it's like when you see people when they're commenting on, you know, quote unquote, black culture. And they'll talk about what's going on in the hood. And, and they'll talk about, well, you see what they're doing to themselves. You see what they're doing to their neighborhoods. And they don't deserve help. And they don't deserve this. And, and my response is always, that's an expression of being told that you're nothing from the time that you're born. Mm-hmm. And if you hear you're nothing from the time that you're born, it's not going to take you very long to believe it. Mm-hmm. And if we have a, have a culture where people, an American culture, where we're just passing judgment on people from the beginning, how can you expect them? Mm-hmm. to do all the things that you're talking about when they clearly don't have a place in your world. Right? Like my mother is an extraordinary human being. You know, my dad died. She raised me by herself. We didn't have any money, but she was able to kind of get me into some decent schools, keep me out of trouble. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't get into real trouble growing up and I tried, believe me, I tried, you know? Um, and I grew up in like, this is back when St. Louis was crip and blood thing. Because uh, St. Louis always wants to be LA. Uh, <laughs> like, if you look at America, every city from LA to St. Louis is trying to be LA. And then from Chicago to New York is all. And so St. Louis is like the last thing trying to be LA. And so we, we would have, you know, we'd have the Crips and Blood and the thing, and everyone was ganged up and the whole deal. And, and you know, she kept me away from all that. Um, but without having that strong influence in my life, I probably would not have made it. I would have turned that energy inwards and been negative about it. But one of the other things I had in my life were comic books because I could identify with those characters. You know, the Bruce Waynes of the world, the Wolverines of the world, you know, even Psylocke uh, uh, back in the day, Quantum Psylocke, the one I'm writing in Fallen Angels. Like these were characters that, that meant something to me because they, they taught me where I could put my extremity. Because one of the hardest things about being a person of color, at least what, what I found, is you don't get the opportunity or the privilege to not be somewhat extreme in your point of view. Because you're kind of at war all the time, right? The world's trying to kill you. And, uh, and, and the world's trying to kill you, and a lot of people should. And that puts you in a certain me- mentality. It puts you in a mindset, Right. And then you get to more gentle places with more gentle people who haven't experienced that same thing, who haven't had the fight to be valid, right? You're not even about being treasured or cherished by society. We have to fight just to get to neutral. Mm-hmm. You know, I can write all the movies, the television shows, and the books that I want. I still make people nervous when I'm in an elevator, you know? Like, right. I, I'm, I still walk down the street, and if I'm, if I'm walking by myself down the street, 
and I see that I'm making, you know, somebody nervous in front of me, I pull out my cell phone and pretend to be making a call just so they know I'm not going to mug them. Right. I mean, this and this is permanent. Like this is the stuff you have to live with. Right. These are all the things that that we have to think about that white people don't have to think about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, no one, going through all of that, uh, reading these characters who had to figure out what to do with that energy and those thoughts, it, it mattered. And that extremity, you know, it can destroy you. It can make you a threat. It can make you scary in a room. Oh, they're so scary. They're so intense. They're argumentative. Um, so in my work, what I try to do is show characters who are going through those things and show how they're able to point those things towards the positive in the hopes that if, you know, another version of me, you know, at 13, 14, 15, you know, 18, whatever, reads one of these books, they might, they might find a little thing in there they can use in their own little technology they can apply to their life. Wow. That's, you said that with that one. Uh, so an interesting uh, tidbit you share with us I think I forgot it was either on Twitter or an interview you said to get ready for your like your five issues detective comics run you went and, dr- and test drove a Lambo or something to that effect uh, Ferrari you, Ferrari how'd you how'd you go and prepare for Batman and the Outsiders well I didn't test drive any supercars for that <laughs> one because um, I'm not sure I could play that trick twice at the Ferrari dealership you know what I mean um, and I didn't actually drive the Ferrari I was driven in the Ferrari around the block. Let's just be clear. Uh, so I don't wanna, you know, they they weren't going to just hand me the keys of the Ferrari because I read Batman comics and be like, "Y'all see y'all in a couple years." No, it wasn't like that. Um, I feel like for for outsiders, uh, you know, it was different. You know, it was more about reading up on some of those characters that I hadn't yet developed a perspective on. Like I came into that project with a perspective on Batman, obviously, a perspective on Cassandra Kane a perspective on Duke Thomas. But there was Katana uh, and Black Lightning, honestly, that I didn't have an innate perspective about. So I had to, you know, look through a bunch of work that was already been done, read all Tony's, all his work, you know, and, and kind of held on to some things there, looked at some other incarnations, caught up with the show. I got some friends of mine that work on the show. So, I, I you know, it's kind of studying that stuff. And a lot of the, a lot of the heavy lifting, it was really figuring out what I was going to do for some peers. Because I, you know, what I didn't want and what I don't want is uh, I don't want him to be like some, you know, Gordon Goodbrother, you know, mm-hmm. like, like that's not that's that's not real to me. Uh, and I, I was like, well, what? Huh, how would Jamie Fox be Jefferson Pierce? You know, like how would like a how would Denzel in 1994 be Jefferson Pierce? Right? Like like that virtuosity Denzel. You know, that, 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 that ricochet, you know, like, like how would, how would those, so I had to kind of build my own way in to Jefferson and, and figure that out. Um, and I'm slow, kind of slow burning it, but you're going to see a lot of different shades of that character that I think you haven't really seen before. So that was most of my, my preparation was on that front with the Batman of it all. You know, I've loved Batman since I was a kid, man. I could, I could probably just recite the entire screenplay to the 1989 Batman, you know, if I, if I sat down and thought about doing it, you know what I mean? Um, so Batman comes kind of naturally in a way for me, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it was, it was like Jefferson, you know, like with Katana, uh, I'm just, you know, like 
I don't want to be too bold, but there's a way that that she as a character can wind up being little more than a fetish. Mm-hmm. And and you see that with a lot of female Asian characters in fiction. Yeah. You know, they're sexy and they're cool and sexy. Did I say sexy? <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> and as a martial artist, I never studied uh, much karate. Um, I have a black belt in Taekwondo. I've studied uh, some five animal Shaolin stuff. I know a little judo, a little hapkido, uh, but I'm not like as sharp as I used to be. Uh, you know, I'm I'm chill and, and cuddly now. But there was a time when I was a little more ferocious at the bag. So you know, Joe Rogan, don't come at me. Joe Rogan can knock me out. No, I'm not I'm not starting anything. No smoke to Joe. But being a martial artist, you know, I wanted to invest into her, her ideas of Bushido. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's almost like her story in Outsiders is how does someone with a martial point of view manage a world that is somewhat devoid of actual ethics? Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's another story about, like, I have a worldview based on my experience. And, frankly, a lot of this world's full of shit. I don't get it. I can try to get it and I can try to save it, but I got to depend on you to explain to me why these systems that are in place need to be here because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of more of, of that stuff. Uh, uh, like kind of thinking through those characters and making sure that they're in a unique way. Just quickly, thank you for bringing, thank you for writing Duke. Please. Thank yeah, you. We were, for was, not, oh yeah. I'm, I'm doing some, I'm doing some things with him. Um, I don't want to say what it is, but it's going to get worse with better, but it's going to get real. <laughs> as long as you're writing him, because I just don't want my guy to be on the bench and into yeah, the like, void was, of was, DC characters. I was worried for a minute about Duke before you came out, bro. I was like, what the hell is going on? Because uh, I talked to his artist for his uh, little mini a couple years ago. Was it, it was a year or two ago at C2E2 when we talked to Cully Hammer. Yeah. yeah, Batman and the Signal. Yeah, yeah, we talked to him about it. He was like, yeah, something's coming. But he didn't seem, he didn't like sound mad confident with this. I was like, oh shit, this ain't good. Well, well, Duke is, you know, um, if if you go back to my Detective Comics arc, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I kind of blew Duke up in the first issue, right? And a lot of people were like, oh man, you just blew up and come out. No, no, I'm dealing with that in Outsiders. You know, I kind of knew that Outsiders was probably coming. So I wanted to really set up uh, a continuity between that arc of detective and outsiders. So and with Duke specifically, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go keep going. Oh, with Duke specifically, I I am personally a little dissatisfied with his his placement in in the Batman mythos, mm-hmm. right? And 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 and, and, then, and I and I get it, you know, I. The, the being, you know, an element of Batman that exists in the daytime and being, you know, a signal of, of that. And I think that's really interesting stuff. But I, I wanted to, to evolve him in a way that honored what Scott uh, had done with him, but also explores him in a way that, that we haven't explored before, you know, and kind of augments him. And, and when, when DC was like, yeah, you can have Rachel Ghoul. I was like, oh, I like that. Because Rachel Ghoul is an agent of change. Mm-hmm. You know, Rachel Ghoul can change people, right? So uh, a lot of, I mean, you can look at outsiders 
play as all of these characters are going to be irrevocably changed by their experience with Ra's al Ghul, which is Batman's greatest fear, right? Uh, with, for them, you know, he's, you know, Batman knows what Ra's is, and and the the danger of Ra's al Ghul is that he'll destroy you. It's that he'll he'll you know augment you, he'll alter you in some way into something else, and you don't know what. And so what Raish is really doing is he's waking up the hidden things in all of these characters because that's that's what he likes to do, right? And so the question with Duke is what is what's under the surface with him that someone like Raish and through through Ishmael, Raish is kind of right hand in this story. How are how you know how is he able to to reach that stuff? And I guess the bigger question uh, the story kind of examines is if Bruce doesn't address these things inside of someone, then someone else will. And if someone else does before Bruce can, Bruce can't control where that's going to go. Mm -hmm. And maybe he shouldn't control where that's going to go, right? So uh, there's a lot that's going to go on with Duke. And I would, I would look at the friendship between him and Cassandra Kane um, because that's going to be really important for both characters going forward. And it is a friendship. Right now, I don't have any kind of romantic things planned. For but uh, I, uh, I really wanted to... I just, it just felt right to me that these two, these two characters should be closer. That they could understand each other in a unique way. right? Uh, and Duke's, Duke is dealing with a lot of, I think, oppressed stuff in this, in this story. And there's not a character in The Outsiders who understands oppression better than Cassandra Kane. So... I think those things uh, kind of kind of bond them together, and hopefully by you know by the end of this, um, you'll see like oh you're going to see a new Duke Thomas that has as a, a different kind of symbolic place in this universe that should uh, strengthen him going forward. For everyone that's listening, please buy Batman and the Outsiders. I need all the issues of this. I need like fifty issues. Oh yeah, yeah. Go go buy it. You should buy it. It's hot. Dexter Soli is killing them in that art. You should just buy it. Forget the writing. Just buy it for the money. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. You know, it almost makes me want to write a script that like, you know, like issue twelve, they fight. Go Dexter. <laughs> like, like like you want to write a like one fawn books where it's just like every page is a splash page. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really fun book, and I'm I'm really uh, proud of the work that you know Dexter, Veronica, and I've been able to do with it. Um, and people should definitely stick with it because it gets crazier from here. I, I you know what what you've seen so far is just like the opening salvo to where it's going to go. It's it's getting more and more hype as we go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said before that you felt like that the Outsiders was coming after your detective arc. Did they pitch that to you, or was that the other way around? You know, I I don't the way I work on comics and the, and it's tends to be the way I get jobs in comics isn't really by pitching either from them or towards me. It's more like you just get into conversations, you know? Mm-hmm. Like like Jamie and I, so what I'll do is I'll reach out to an editor who I like or I've heard is a good person to work with. And I might not even want to work in any of the books that they're doing. I'll just reach out and say, Hey, you wanna you wanna get a cup of coffee, you want to drink, you know? And just kind of, you know, talk. Because a lot of them are in L.A. now. Because the companies are, you know, DC moved out to L.A. And um, Marvel is still in New York. But, you know, there's some folks out here. And we'll just get together and have, like, a couple scotches. And, and you know, just kind of get to know one another. And then we'll just start talking about characters. You know, and, and say, hey, man, well, you know, this is interesting. Oh, you know what I would all 
Batman versus Superman, I would have done it this way. Or I would have done this this way. This story was dope. And, and from that comes you know, a little interest. You, know, you might say something that you don't even think about. And then, like, to Jamie, we were talking about that vertical idea. And somehow we were talking about Batman because if you get me talking about comics for more than five minutes, I'm going to talk about Batman. And uh, see, you know, I said something about Batman that I guess resonated with him. And then he reached out, uh, uh, and Chris Conroy, um, editor over there, reached out and said, hey, do you, do you want to write five issues of Detective? And I was uh, up in Canada working on Titan season one at the time. Um, and I'm like, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I told him, like, I'm not famous enough for Detective Comics, but I sure as hell will take that football and run. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then that came out of that. And then the Outsiders sort of, I think... When they saw the first couple scripts come in, and, I, and, and shout out to Chris Conroy. When I wrote the first script to that detective run, um, I was off rhythm. You know, I, I, I hadn't worked on superhero comics, really. And what I was doing was a little too indie comic, a little too image, I think, for what it needed to be. And I was a little crestfallen about it. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I just, you know, maybe I'm just not in the right mindset. And credit to Chris Conroy for being like, no, you're fine. Just, you know, build, build on this stuff. Save the stuff for later, and, and you'll go forward. And so I kept on working. I think once they saw like issue one and issue two come in with the script and realized how Batman my thinking was. You know, I mean, like, if you read that Detective Comics thing, you get, you get kind of all the greatest hits. <laughs> right? You get, like, Bruce driving the sports car, the bat signal on top of the buildings. Like, all the stuff that... I love as as uh, a fan of DC and Gotham and all the rest of it. And I think that passion came across, and then they started saying, "Hey, you know, what about what about this and that?" And I was already going to try to put, you know, you know, Jeff up in there and do some, you know what I mean? So we were kind of floating around, uh, and then it just kind of organically just came together. You know, um, a lot of people don't, a lot of editors and companies don't think that I like to write comics because I do Hollywood stuff. So a lot of times people, people will say, oh man, you know, I, I didn't think you'd even want to do this. Um, and I'm like, no, I've always wanted to do this. But, you know, now it's like, yeah, like I like doing it. I like, you know, I like writing these stories. So that's kind of where all that stuff kind of came out. So with these characters like Duke, with like X-23, who you're going to be working with, Fallen Angels, Cassandra, and uh, the work you did with Miles Morales on, uh, on the annual, how do you kind of approach legacy characters? Ooh, that's a very good question, man. Um, well, you know, it's all different. You know, every character kind of comes with its own uh, stuff, right? And like with Miles, for instance, I didn't realize that I was one of the few people that had written Miles that wasn't Brian Bendis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately, they told me that before I wrote the script, which is a terrible thing to tell a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't tell me that before. It's like it's like you, it's like you walk into the booth like, yeah, man, we haven't had anybody in the booth since Eminem. You're like, thanks. <laughs> me, hold on, let me take these garbage bars. <laughs> I, I'll need an hour. Thanks. Um. So, yeah, you know, it's all it's all different. But at at the end of all of it, man, you have to you have to trust your your ability to tell a story and um you know you whether it's a, a character that is new that someone wants me to write or a character that's been around for a long time you got to find find yourself in it somewhere 
Mm-hmm. You know, you got you to find your way in. And, uh, and that, to me, is really what keeps me from doing something. I've been approached about certain characters, and I won't mention which ones, but I just turned them down because I'm like, yeah, I don't have a way in on that. Uh, you know, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see how I could do that well, you know? Uh, and then I've had other things where people, where I've said that, and they're like, oh, well, well we, we like this quality of your work, and we want to apply that quality to the character, and then sometimes like, oh, okay, if I, yeah, if we can do that, I can do that. But, you know, um, part of this game is you're just always going to be working on things that have been around for a long time. You're going to have a, they're going to say you're doing it right, they're going to say you're doing it wrong. Um, the best you can do is just be consistent, you know, to your own vision and set your own standard of quality and just make sure you hit it uh, and then hope that it, it matters for people. You know, I mean, uh, I, I got a lot of people that liked what I did with Miles. I got a lot of people who didn't. Well, a lot, but I, enough. You know, I got some people that I didn't like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I feel you. I get it. I get it. You know, uh, you know, these, these people, they love these characters. And when they see a character doing a thing, they're they going to let you know. You know, and, and and that's why, you know, you 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 have to develop a, a little bit of a thick skin about it. You can't take things personally. Uh, I mean, entertainment's a contact sport, so you got to kind of go in knowing it. So this, this is more about your Marvel work. Like, so you've done your Spider-Man annual, the What If for the X-Men and Killmonger. So what did those books teach you about the process and approaching different characters and properties? Because Killmonger was just coming off of Black Panther and Spider-Man Miles is still trying to come up and the X-Men is a what if and I feel like that's kind of a doorway into further down the line for you. So how do you to do different characters? Well, you know, um, each of those things, uh, it always starts off with with having an idea that you like that you feel like you want to write. And uh, that's, that's the genesis of it. And I don't have a plan when it comes to comics, especially. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm like Heath Ledger. Like, I don't have a plan. I just write them when they ask me to write them, and then they come out. You know, so I don't, I don't look at, like, oh, I'm going to do this, and then this is going to lead to that. And, you know, not really, right? Like, so with the Miles thing, I just thought it would be a lot of fun to try to do that because it's different than what I had done before. Um, he's a different kind of character than normally, you know, a little, he's younger, more hopeful, a little more blue sky. So that, that was fun. And I got to work with Nelson on that. And anytime I can work with a good friend of mine, you know, it's always a plus. And with uh, 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 the what if X-Men story, I'm a huge fan of cyberpunk. And I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, Mamoru Oshii's work, uh, Satomo Nihei, um, uh, you know, the cyberpunk. Uh, game. Uh, uh, oh, I, the name slips me. Who's the fella that created all that? Uh, Pondsmith, Mike Pondsmith. Um, so Mike Pondsmith was a big inspiration to me as when I was a kid talking about inspirations, going back to that. So Mike Pondsmith was a person of color who created like this entire like cyberpunk world. And I used to buy the um, cyberpunk RPG source books. I'd never played the, the tabletop game. I've never really played tabletop game. But I used to buy those source books and just read them just to learn how to build a world, learn how to build characters, right? It's be fascinated with that kind of um, So when Chris Robinson asked me, hey, you want to do this thing, cyberpunk this? I was like, yeah, yeah that sounds like Now, Killmonger was interesting because I, at first, did not want to do Killmonger. Oh, really? When, 
Yeah, Marvel reached out about it, and they were like, hey, we want to do this Killmonger series. Um, would you be interested in doing it? And I initially was like, mm, because I just felt like, oh, that could easily just be a cash-in because the movie made a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to do that, you know? Like, I don't want to do something that just feels like a piece of business. I mean, I get it. I get why you want to publish something. I understand that. Uh, I'm not telling, you know, not thinking they shouldn't do it, but I'm like, ah, I want to really be able to do something, and I don't know if I can do something. And they were like, no, 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 we're not. That's not what this is. You can, you can do whatever you want. Uh, so then I got interested and started thinking of what I could do with him and exploring those emotions, you know, and, and almost treating Eric in a way like Anakin Skywalker a little bit. Uh, you know, like, again, you know, it's the same kind of thing that I always sort of gravitate to in storytelling. It's the, those emotions, those feelings, harnessing that stuff or, or letting that stuff run away with you. And what I also wanted to do was explore the darker side of the spirituality of Wakanda. You know, uh, like, Bast is not the only goddess. There are other gods, right, who wanted other things. And I, and I wanted to sort of add to, like, the pantheon of Wakandan spirituality mm-hmm. uh, and, o- and open that up a little bit. Uh, and then with Juan Ferrer to do the art, I was like, oh, good. We can start shooting some people in the face. So <laughs> uh, I wanted to be raw. You know, I had to feel authentic, I think, to Killmonger. Um, and, uh, uh, I, you know, I looked at, like, Bendis's work with Alex Maleev on Daredevil uh, and how that just felt, like, ground level, man. Like, that was real. Um, and, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to dimensional uh, a little bit. You know, he's got some interesting relationships in that story. And, you know, there's this idea that, like, oh, someone like Eric, he's, a, he's, just, a, he's just a racist and a racist and a racist and a racist, right? It's hard to write off that perspective. And, you know, that's, there's an element of prejudice in, in Eric's worldview, but it's also informed by life experience. But as you can see, he has something of a respect for that character King that's in the story. Now, ultimately, you know, when it comes down to philosophy, difference, and there's a whole scene where Eric outlines his philosophical differences. You know, uh, uh, he's like telling King that he's going to go to Wakanda, uh, and, and King's like, you know, says something, and he's like, you don't understand, white, you have Wakanda's all over the world. And so there's, there, I felt like I could do something with that character um, to make him more... See, see, here's the thing that happens in fiction. A lot of times in fiction, when the establishment wants to make sure that we all get along, they'll create a charismatic version of a person of color that articulates everything that they're terrified of, right? Mm-hmm. And, then they'll, and then they'll kill them. <laughs> 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 right and it's almost like it's almost like a symbolic death right it's like it's like oh so so we not so we, we killed this character we don't worry about this we moved on past this right uh and i wanted to uh you know delve deeper into what can make a person like eric eric uh and and point out some of the failings of wakanda you know there's a whole page in there Were you when this was happening where are you when that was happening where were you when this was happening you know, you're better than everybody else, but you also don't participate. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, if, if I'm given the freedom to, to write, then, yeah, then, then, I, then I get excited about it. Uh, I got nervous because I, I, I heard through a friend that Michael Jordan was reading. And I was like, oh, word. Oh, 
well, I hope you like it. <laughs> but I heard he liked it. Um, and and I also heard that Eminem like, which was like the best best email you can get. Because I didn't know, but M is apparently a big comic book nerd, and he has like a million dollar comic book collection. And I heard from a friend like, oh, you know, that Killmonger. I was like, cool. Uh, so yeah, you know, it was a, that was a fun thing, but it really is all about like, you know, it's, it's almost like being a rapper or something, you know, like a, a established character is like a, a beat, you know, and sometimes you hear a beat and you're like, oh, I can rap. And then sometimes you have a beat and like, ooh, I don't, I don't know how to rap on that one. That's one of them, that's one of them weird Pharrell beats. I don't know how to hit that one, but <laughs> you know, that's not like a bunch of spoons falling on the floor, but, um, uh, there's. Yeah, so it's like it's like it's just always a gut. I'm I'm I very much just kind of go with my gut on something, uh, for better or worse. And if it speaks to me, I'll do it. But I don't really think. All right, okay. This, but last two questions because this is kind of my section, and I've been geeking out about X Men since Hickman announced that he was saving them finally. What yeah, intrigued yeah. you enough? Wave of Dawn of X titles. Honestly, it was an opportunity to work with Hickman. Um, I, I love East and West. Uh, I love Black Monday Murders. Um, Hickman was one of the nicest people to me when I first came into comedy. I first met Jonathan when I was doing Romulus. And I went, there's an image expo thing they do every year where the creators get in front of retailers and they talk about their books. So, like, you know, retailers order books and, and the rest of it. It's how we try to, like, sell books in this broken system that comics. Um... And Hickman was nice, man. He was just a cool dude. And he had no reason to be cool to me. He could have just been an asshole. And obviously that wouldn't have mattered because he's Jonathan Hickman, but he wasn't. And just real talk, a lot of comic book people were not cool to me in the beginning. And I'm not holding a grudge. It's just that, you know, a lot of people just weren't trying to let me into the, into the party. Even when I was writing books and publishing books, like, you know, it wasn't really a place where I felt comfortable. Jonathan always made me feel um, so I, I love the opportunity to work with him. Uh, and then the way that he was changing the nature of the X-Men, I thought was fascinating. Um, and there were some thematics in House of X that I responded to. It's, uh, you know, it's got some esoteric thought, which is, you know, par for the course for Jonathan. I mean, his work is full of that kind of thought. But I, I saw elements of Buddhism. I saw elements of Kabbalah. I saw elements of things that I'm like, ooh, this is really fascinating. Um, but you know, my schedule being what it was, I didn't know if, it uh, but I told them like, listen, if I can write Psylocke, then I'm down. And, and they were like, oh, well, you know, Braddock, you know, she's going to be, you know, Captain Britain. I was like, I say nothing about Libertatic. <laughs> I said Psylocke. And they're like, oh, I'm like, yeah. Um, and they were like really, uh, they were super supportive about it. Because um, I'll be honest, like one of the things that bummed me out uh, was I felt like there was potential for the the Japanese Psylocke, for Quan and Revenge, to just get left by the wayside because of, you know, Elizabeth, you know, kind of coming back into the game. And it goes back to what I was saying about Katana. You know, I mean, you know, these, these characters that can become fetishes. Oh, she's hot and she's wearing a swimsuit, you know, uh, and and not not there's not being a lot of exploration there. And so I wanted to tell a story about a character that 
did not feel like they had a place in Xavier's dream. Mm -hmm. And and uh, other characters who also kind of feel that same whisper. And if you notice, if you look at you know Kid Cable, X twenty three, Laura, um, you know Psylocke, these are all characters that are warriors. And uh, if if someone's talking about a post war utopia, you know, a place beyond the battle. Um, some warriors aren't going to feel comfortable there. Even if they appreciate it, mm-hmm. they, they, they need to fight. Well, in a sense, because they're all weapons, too. Because they're weapons, right? Mm-hmm. So that seemed like an, an interesting way to take it. And I, you know, without giving away plot detail, I think Fallen Angels is probably the most intimate of all of the, the, like the, first, you know, the first wave of books. Mm-hmm. Because so, what's that? Oh, <laughs> it's well, it, it is. I mean, it really is about about Psylocke and Laura, Cable, and like you know, sort of like an, a new kind of menace that they have to face. But you know, I, I, it's it's different than your kind of normal bombastic kind of comic book experience. Um, I think it's a little more meditative. Uh, it might not be for everybody, but I think for the people that it will be for, it'll really, you know? Uh, and uh, I, I've gotten so much love from people that were just fans of who identified with her, uh, especially a lot of Asian uh, comic book fans um, who were, were, were concerned, you know, that she was getting kind of, thrown out and, and 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 we're concerned that her like severity can quickly just get turned into oh well you know she's cold you know, that's what she's a cold killer she's a cold killer lady um <laughs> you know because it's so much of that right like you know like like you know uh so that's like one of the stereotypes that unfortunately get assigned to you know to especially asian women like oh cold 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 um, and so I wanted to, you know, kind of get out of that. Um, and seeing how excited people are about that makes me very happy. So, yeah, I, I think it's dope. I think it's a, a really cool, interesting, philosophical, sci-fi action book um, that hopefully will, you know, be an equivalent experience to all the other great books that are being written as part of that initiative. Our, uh, one last thing, and it might be the most important aspect of Fallen Angels. Yeah, yeah. Will it have Hickman-like graphs and charts? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I just had a conversation uh, with uh, Jordan uh, Jordan White over there at Marvel about the Batman stuff that's going to go into the book. So I am not a graphic designer. So Jonathan's a graphic designer. Thanks, so he... He's got he's got the advantage of knowing how to do that. Um, I'm a filmmaker and a photographer, but don't put me in illustrator because ain't nothing gonna happen. So, uh, I there will be some some interesting back matter there for sure. Uh, in terms of how it's all designed out, we will see. That is beyond the scope of my. But yeah, there's gonna be some cool stuff. In there. Take it. <laughs> I rock with it. I messed with that. All right. Very last question, because we've already taken a whole hour and a half of your time. What is your dream project? Ooh, boy. Great TV um, series. 
definitely say that. <laughs> well, I mean, look, if I get if I if I was like you know if I had to get Infinity and I could snap my fingers and do anything, I would I would I would create and show run a new version of Miami Vice. A lot of cocaine in that. I, place. I, <laughs> you know, we're we're Crockett and Tubbs come come back in there. We got some new characters and the whole. I got a whole. Uh, um, and it, that's one of those things where I think about really won't ever make me money to think about, but I like thinking about it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just have a bunch of notes on it. So yeah, I think if I could make anything happen, I would probably do that. Yeah. Well, folks, that is the mind of Mr. Brian Edward Hill, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Uh, nothing but amazing guests here on Looking Glass. Thank you once again for coming and spending, give us a whole hour and a half of your time because I didn't think this was going to go this long. So, uh, oh, okay. I, I wasn't even looking at the clock <laughs> on my shit, and then I just stick around. I get comfortable. I'm I start ordering lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right, Mr. Hill, uh, tell the people. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you can find me on at Brian Edward Hill. That's uh, Brian with a Y. Um, that's probably the easiest place to get. You can find me on. E but not much comic stuff going on there. It's mostly my photography and you know all that. That's where I keep the sexy stuff. And then um, you know, besides that, let's see. You got Outsiders coming out next week. Fallen Angels is in November. I've got some other announcements of things. Uh, got some uh, comic book thing like I I can talk about soon. Got some film things I can talk about soon. Might have some things. So you know, follow me there and those things. Uh, and if you're in LA. You know, go to the perfume counter at Bloomingdale's and you might see me there shopping for some Tom Ford. You know, that's that's a that's a good place to find. <laughs> Up there trying to get that trying to get that old wood, trying to get the tobacco vanilla, you know what I mean? <laughs> Crispy. <laughs> All right, man. Uh as always, this is Looking Glass Ash. Go ahead and tell the people where they can find you, Terrence, you too. Everybody tell the people uh, where they can find you. Yeah. Okay. Um I'm Ash the Stampede. Uh, that's with a D A, not B anymore. Um, EV Gang update: We're 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 getting an episode out next week, so be patient. We're coming back. It's okay. We had to take a break. Uh, follow me at New. Stay for the intellectual takes and don't block me for my dumbness, please. I'm trying to. Get out there, and I got a whole bunch of writing about comics eventually when I'm not lazy. And yeah, that's it. As always, <laughs> this is X Saturday. Black Ash three nine two and another tag to sell you our bitches. Um, follow follow Ash's Pie Evie underscore Gang. Subscribe to the Barbershop's Patreon. Five dollars gives you access to exclusive content. Rate the Barbershop or Looking Glass feed five stars. If you leave a comment, we will shout you out here in the pod. Please go buy Mr. Hill's works. Please go support Batman Outsiders. If this book gets fucking canceled, I'm coming for you motherfuckers. And then go mm, oh he, said, he said he gonna put some money on you. <laughs> <laughs> he said he could put you on your feet to put some money on your head. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, follow us on Looking Glass Netman. We are out. We will see y'all next week.